Good morning, everybody. Welcome to FSU Coach Live. My name is Tim Bankers, and this morning's guest is Jessica Searcy. She is a, a performance coach, and I'm going to ask you, Jessica, to explain a little bit about your background and how you got into to doing what you do today before we get into what it is you actually do, some of your roles and responsibilities. Sure. So I was a professional athlete for six years. Um, I rode horses professionally. Yes, that is um, does, that does make me a professional athlete. Um, I rode horses for six years, but I've been riding since probably before I could walk. Um, horse crazy kid. Um, and from the time I was very young, the idea was I wanted to ride in the Olympics. And my journey was cut short in terms of riding professionally. Um, not only because of injuries, but really because of what I would call a mental performance problem. Uh, this was 20 years ago. We didn't talk about mental performance mm -hmm. 20 years ago, really, unless you were already at Olympic level. It was, wasn't something we discussed. So I made the decision to retire um, from writing um, and do something different, um, pursue another path. So I went um, to university in North Carolina and got a degree in mechanical engineering and then found my way into a career that probably doesn't sound like it would be incredibly performance driven, but it actually is. Um, I became a, a nuclear engineer and I did that for 13 years um, across multiple countries. I, I don't live in the United States anymore. I now live in the United Kingdom, but I've lived in Germany. I've lived in France. I've been to Sweden. I've been in a lot of places um, pursuing that career. And that career may feel or may sound incredibly unrelated to performance and mental performance, but it's actually a career that taught me um, actually a lot. Because when it comes to nuclear energy and a nuclear power, nothing says perform under pressure like the choices between safety and revenue. And that's the choice you get when it comes to nuclear power. You can either lose a million dollars a day in revenue or you can go down a path that is possibly unsafe. And when it's unsafe, it's not just slightly unsafe. It can be really unsafe as we learned over time. Um, so the choices of performance under pressure, there was no choice. Um, so I learned just by doing it, by being in an environment where there was no choice. Um, and I loved my career. I loved it. I learned a lot. I traveled a lot. However, it had an impact. My performance was necessary. And as a result, my health suffered. And in November of 2018, I was in, I was in a meeting. Um, I was working very typical 40 to 60 hour work week, just depending on how the week was going. And on top of that, I had a business on the side. So sometimes my weeks were 80 hour weeks. And in the middle of a meeting, I dropped right in the middle of the meeting. Um, nothing incredibly serious, but just my stress and my health has started to become an issue. And that's when I kind of figured out that, you know, performance under pressure is one thing, but performance under pressure and managing your 
mental, physical, and emotional health is entirely another. And that's when I started to kind of make that transition. It's like, yes, performance under pressure. That I mean, performance is how we measure anything, how we put value with anything. If you don't perform, you have no value. That is just the way the world has become. Athletes have to perform. People who work in offices have to perform. Everybody has to perform. That's how we determine some somebody or something's value. And if you can't, then you're done. So performing is the baseline, but performing at what cost became my question. Was I willing to sacrifice, continue to sacrifice my health, both not just my physical health, but my emotional health and my mental health in order to continue to do the job that I was doing and do my work on the side. Um, the universe intervened and I started my business a couple years before that um, and then went full time a few months after my health. You want to call it a scare? Um, you can call it that. And I just decided that the while performance is necessary, performing and maintaining your mental and emotional health is the gold standard. It's not optional anymore. Um, and that's kind of my, that's kind of my goal is yes, I want performance under pressure. I want the ability to perform and perform at elite level, but not at the sacrifice of your mental health. And that's what I do for my athletes. Quite a, quite a different story to what most people on the show would give, right? Typical, yes. I was an athlete, then I became a coach, or I, I got involved in sports. You went, you went down a career path where, as you talked about, performance is crucial. And, and I think most, I mean, performance is crucial in my job. It's a crucial in everybody's job. You, what you're talking about is, is almost balance, performing when you have to at the right times. But in order to do that, you have to take care of the other things that go on around that performance. Absolutely. Can you give a, a, an example or, or maybe share how, how you ensure that your athletes do that? Because most of us who are competitive, who have been athletes, who are in the world of sports, it's push, push, push. And we'll sacrifice maybe some of the things that we shouldn't in order to get to where we want to. How do you how do you help those athletes keep balanced, keep perspective when I'm a 20 year old who's, you know, healthy as as anybody and the world's my oyster and you're telling me to slow down? Mm. Well, the first thing I always bring to attention is what's the long term goal? Like what's do you want to have a career that's going to last six years like mine did? Or you do want do you want a career that's going to last fifteen years? Do you want to still be playing a sport at 38, 39, maybe even forty? Do you want a, the longevity of that career? Um, because yes, at eighteen, nineteen, twenty years old, sure, you don't feel the after effects. Um, you also don't feel the after effects so much of going to the gym. But as you push harder and harder and every level requires more and more and more, you feel more and more and more. And so I always start with like, with what do you want long-term? Do you just want a college career and you're great? Or do you want a career that's going to go on to the pros? 
do you want a career that's going to go on to the Olympics? Do you want a career that's going to go on to Wimbledon or whatever the gold standard is, the World Cup? Um, so I always start there. And then the other thing I make sure that they establish is a good routine. You have a pregame routine. Every, every athlete has a pregame routine. You know, they've got well, a playlist. I would argue that. I think a lot of them <laughs> don't, but anyway. Yeah, we I should. Know Let's put it that way. We should. We should have a pregame routine. You know, you've got a playlist you're listening to. You know, I've got, I know an athlete who puts, you know, one shoe on always first mm -hmm. because that's just the way it's always done it. Same shoe on first every time. And it's a routine that they practice before every game um, in order to get ready but why don't you bring that practice into daily to, into daily life why don't you get up every morning and say set intentions and say this is what i intend for today or why don't you get up in the mornings and say this is what i want long term and visualize and use imagery and visualization to bring that to life in your mind because when you're you imagine it, your brain and your body don't know the difference of whether you're imagining or whether it's really, really happening. So if your brain doesn't know the difference, why wouldn't you get up and do that? Take that opportunity every single day to wake up and really imagine and think and almost dream about what you really want. Why wouldn't you do that? Why wouldn't you get up every morning and meditate for 20 minutes to bring some clarity and some calmness before you start your hectic day? So it's these kinds of things that you know, you have a routine that you set before each game. Let's bring that into your life in order to bring some consistency because the consistency is for me is what's key. You train every day for your sport. So if you're an athlete, you're practicing every day, you're going to the gym, I'll probably every other day at a minimum, you know, you're in the gym, but why wouldn't you train your brain that way? Why don't you train your brain every day as well? Um, and a lot of athletes, I feel like they don't get that. Oh, I, you know, I've got to train from the neck up as well. You've got to do well, both. I, I would add as well that, you know, you mentioned athletes don't get that. I would add as well that maybe coaches and managers mm. and athletic directors yeah. don't get that either. And because of that, the athletes don't receive. Don't get it. Yeah. You've got to start with that. You got to start at the top of the triangle and build down. The athletes mm -hmm. are, you know, they're at the lower end of the triangle. You got to start at the top and get them to understand that. A lot of one of one of the challenges for for people going into sports degrees or sports training, whether it's sports science, kinesiology, whatever is, is what do I do when I graduate? Right. Mm -hmm. And and there's that kind of I don't know. And I was the same way when I graduated as I don't know what I'm doing. What should I do? You've you've obviously created a, a path for yourself, and and yes, it wasn't straight out of college, or you, you know you you retired from from horse riding and and turned to this. But can you explain a little bit about how you, you your business works? Because I, I'm sure there are those out there who who would be interested in, in kind of following in your footsteps and and doing something similar to what you do, but have just never really thought about it as a full time vocation. A lot of yeah. times it's kind of, oh, well, we will do it on the side, but I really need to have that, that retirement plan or that pension or et cetera. So can you share a little bit about how you, how you work? Sure. Um, there's, yeah, I did do this part-time for 
a number of years. Um, I worked just, you know, I did my nine to five with the pension, with the retirement plan um, job, and then was using my evenings and my weekends to, you know, to work with, to work with people. And it's an exhausting way to live. <laughs> it really is. And like I said um, previously, you know, the universe intervened and I was able to go full time um, as a result of that intervention by the universe. And the way it works is a, just a determination of, you know, when you talk to your athletes, you talk about what do you want long-term? What do you want? What's the dream? What's the goal? Where do you want to get? Um, and it's the same for when you build a business like this, you have to know what you're wanting to build long-term. You have to, and you have to know it in detail. You can't just say, oh, I want to be a mental performance coach and go with that. That doesn't work. You have to be able to say, this is everything down to like, this is my ideal client. These are the kind of people that I'm called to serve. This is the impact that I'm, that I want to have on my clients. So you, in the same way you would visualize free throws or the same way you would visualize a a course that you that you have to ride on a horse before you actually do it the same thing applies is you have to know where you're headed and maybe you don't have an exact detail but you at least it's like having a compass you have to at least know that you're going east you know columbus set off and went east to get to west or no yeah, west to get to east. <laughs> and so it was, you know, it's that kind of thing. You have to at least know what direction you're headed. And the more detail and the more you go, then you fill in the details of this is the first goal. Like my one of my first goals was my first paying client, my first paying athlete client. Um, that was a goal way before I even went to my, you know, built started to do my business full time breaking the the long-term dream down into small little increment goals in the same way you would as an athlete. You don't say, oh, I want to be in the Olympics. You say, yes, I do want to be in the Olympics, but that's not going to happen, you know, immediately. So how do I build to that? It's the same kind of thing. You build it piece by piece, referral by referral, athlete by athlete, coach by coach. How do you, how do you market yourself? Because that's, you know, owning your own business, working for yourself, in many respects, you have to be a master of many, many talents, right? It's, it's not just, a, <laughs> I do this for my living and I know this yeah. specialty and, and I'm valued here. You've sure. got to be good at everything. And one of those yep. is, is recruiting, recruiting athletes to your program. Yep. Otherwise you don't have a business. It runs out. Well, how do you how do you do that do you use social media do you website is it through referrals how does it work most of my clients come to me through referrals um that's the way i would say most of the people come to me is you know they they know somebody i've worked with or they know somebody that knows me that kind of thing um i use social media a little bit um and i'm slowly starting especially what happened you know when covid Help, um, came into our world, I started using social media a lot more and to, but I find that that's just really, really good way to like, let the world know who you are. People don't normally see your social media posts and go, oh, I'm going to call this person or email this person right. that doesn't really work that way. 
um, it's a great, but it's a great way to tell people who you are, what you do, um, and tell your story. Um, and then the other thing that I do is because it's stuff like this is I get up and talk. Um, I do webinars that I give away, you know, invite specific, I did one, um, for specifically people who ride horses. So it's like, come and let's talk about mental performance for equestrians. You know, what's the difference between that and say somebody who plays basketball. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'll do webinars, I'll do workshops. Um, I do a half day workshop where we talk about, um, what I call a, a team saboteur that lives inside your head. And we really break down what's this, you know, what's going on with the way you talk to yourself and the way you feel about yourself. It's all about around that self-talk and stuff like that. Um, and just talking to people about what I do, not with in that salesy, you know, hire me kind of way, but just telling people so they know. And then it, when you are walking your path, if you, you know, if you put it that way, you know, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. People start to come and see, start to come and see you. Do you have, do you have any situations where the, the coaches are looking at, at what you do and say, Hey, come work with my team rather than the individuals. Does that happen? Um, for me, it hasn't happened yet. Let's put it that way. Um, I'm open to it. Definitely. Uh, but I know it's something that is becoming more and more common. You see, um, living here in the UK, you see um, a lot of the, like Team GB or England, they'll have like a sports psychologist, some mental, um, you know, mental performance coaches, like on staff for like Team GB, stuff like that. A lot of the the big sports. So we have the big three here in the UK. So cricket, rugby, and football or soccer. Um, and the big clubs, they'll have like a, they'll have staff for it, but they don't necessarily have a in other sports. They don't necessarily have exactly people on staff. Normally, they'll bring you in as a consultant to come in, do a workshop, come in mid-season if some you know if the team is struggling that kind of that kind of thing it's becoming more and more popular it's becoming more and more necessary because again it's that performance teams that don't perform one they don't get the fan base two they don't get the the media attention you know they don't get the money the income and the revenue coming in that if they're not performing so if they're struggling they'll look for somebody they'll look for somebody to come in and say you know, our team is really struggling, come help us. And, you know, we'll come in either at the beginning of the season and in the off season and try and sort everybody out before the season starts or come in mid season and just say, you know, let's see if we can get some quick fixes, get you guys back on path. And then come the off season, we'll start with everybody individually and really yeah, work on skills. I find it interesting the way you describe that. Cause I think it's pretty accurate in that most most people working in sports, excluding the athletes, usually look for the the band-aid once yep. there's a cut, as yep. opposed to how do we prevent the cut in the first place? Exactly. Yeah. And that's really that's a really important point is you don't have to wait until things are going badly 
to get a mental performance coach. Please, as a matter of fact, please don't. <laughs> that makes our jobs harder. It makes your job harder. It puts more stress on you. It puts more stress on us and our relationship as coach and athlete. Don't wait until things are at the dire edge. This is not a, you know, because it's not, a, there's not a lot of quick fix. We're talking, it takes a minimum of eight weeks to, you know, train your brain to do, to, you know, build new habits. So this is not really something that can, you know, snap your fingers and fix. That's a great point. The, the fact that this takes time, but a lot of people who are, who are looking to hire you and you know, I've been in the same situation as yourself. It's, it's give me the magic pill yep. so that I can get to where I want to be. And I know you can do it. And if after three or four sessions, it's not working, then obviously it isn't helped. It, you know, it's not helping. And then I would also say that there's also that challenge of you can't show me that it's working argument where if yeah. I have a, you know, a goalkeeper coach and I can show that, you know, the goalie is saving 5% more shots than they did three, three months ago. Look, I've been of benefit. Whereas in your situation, you're talking about 10, 20 years of somebody's career where you want them to be successful at 40, not just at 20. Yeah. How, how do you, how do you educate people on the importance that this is a, a long-term process and you don't necessarily see tangible results in immediate performance gains? Yeah. I always make sure the two big ones for me are lifestyle and commitment. And what I, what I mean by that, so lifestyle is mental fitness mental performance is not a quick fix you know take a magic pill anybody who tells you different is lying and trying to sell you something this is a lifestyle in the same way that going to the gym um practicing your skills like you don't learn to dribble a soccer ball dribble a football and then never practice it again and then expect to be able to do it on game day or take a penalty kick it just doesn't happen you practice and practice and practice and you practice all the time. That's why, you know, you'll see the people who are regular penalty kick takers practicing it at least once a week. The same thing happens with mental fitness. The same thing happens with mental performance. This is a practice it every day. This is a lifestyle. It's you cannot be in a program for eight or nine weeks and get these tools and get this benefit and then go back to your old where you don't practice your techniques you don't practice your you know positive self-talk you don't practice your meditation you don't practice your mindfulness you don't practice the tools and the things that you learned every day or two or three times a week because just like your muscle will atrophy if you stop going to the gym your brain muscles will also atrophy over time. Um, and we're getting to the point where you were talking about how we don't have tangible evidence. We're getting to the point now where actually we do. We're getting to the point now where you can start to see some of these techniques as if you put somebody under a functional MRI, you can see parts of the parts of their brain light up in the areas that we'd like to, you know, that we want to see them light lighting up. And over time, you can see actually a difference in the gray matter. 
you can start to see like the brain actually looks different eight or nine weeks after practicing these techniques. But in terms of seeing it every day, the, you know, seeing it within a day, within two days, no, you're not gonna see it. The only thing you're gonna see is your athlete feels better. And how do you measure they feel better? Do you, do you then recognizing this and recognizing that a lot of parents or, or young athletes don't have the, the information that you have, that don't have the, the knowledge that this does change over time, do you, do you then ask them to kind of work with you for a set period of time? Or is it just a month to month? Um, because I, I think you, from, from your perspective, I would say, well, given this and given that it takes time, I would ask athletes or parents of athletes to say, hey, this is, you need to give me at least six months or you need to give me a year. Is that something you do or is it just an open door policy of come and go? Definitely not an open door policy of come and go. <laughs> um, you know, I'll do an intro session, you know, where it's come in, try it out. And that, but that's more to see, do we get along? You know, are we, are we a good fit together? Because, you know, working with an athlete, it's, it's a, it's a type of relationship. And so, you know, we're not talking about like romantic chemistry, but we're talking about, there's gotta be, you gotta be able to talk to that person and relate with that person. So, but there's definitely not a, I'll come when I feel like it policy. Um, I usually say it's a minimum of nine weeks um, and that's nine weeks with work every single day. Um, wow. yeah, so that's, but I'm not talking like eight. it's not like going to the, you know, going to the gym for three hours every day. It's, you know, 15, 20 minutes a day, every day for nine weeks. That's to start. And then after that, it's about maintaining that. How do you maintain that level? How do you maintain that kind of mental? I, I love to use the word mental fitness because that's exactly what it is. Um, how do you maintain your brain muscles that you've developed in that first nine weeks? It's like boot camp, and then how do you maintain that afterwards? When when you do that intake and you meet them, um, you, you start this process. In general, if I ask you to generalize, what would you say that most athletes struggle with the most? What do they need the most? I love this question. Um, I specialize in something I call hyperachiever syndrome. Um, it's not a, it's not a recognized syndrome. So don't please go look it up in the medical journals for hyperachiever syndrome. It's not a recognized syndrome. That's just what I call it. Um, hyperachiever, what I call hyperachiever syndrome is something, um, that I think most athletes, um, have, and especially in the United States, because the United States has a general cultural predisposition of high achievement. We all, every parent wants their kid to be a high achiever. So they put them in piano and ballet and, you know, football, baseball, basketball, whether the kids, you know, have a love for it or not sometimes. So it's this, we want them to be, because we tie that, oh, in order for them to be happy, they have to achieve a lot. And we tie those two together. So that's kind of our cultural predisposition in the United States. But then with athletes, it's very much, you know, tied to the sport. What happens is when everything's going great and you're winning and you're improving and you're performing well, it's magic. 
everything's wonderful. It couldn't be, it couldn't be better. But when things go bad, it's almost the difference between a bright sunny day at the beach and a level five hurricane. It's when things are going bad, it's really bad. And what happens, the reason that happens is because you taught athletes will tie. And I am speaking from personal experience here in that I have done this. Mm-hmm. I tied my self-worth, my sense of identity. Like I am an equestrian. I am a professional equestrian. If I'm not performing as a professional equestrian, if I'm not winning that blue ribbon, obviously if you're not winning, guess what? You're losing. And there's that mentality of if you're not winning, if you didn't come in first place, you know, second place is the first loser. So when you're not performing at what you consider to be successful, that's when things, that's when the stress and that's when the anxiety kicks in and it becomes almost like a a weight jacket that you, you know, the, the weight jackets that you end up carrying. And this is what happened to me uh, when I was in my writing career, I was struggling. Um, I went to, um, I went to a barn where everybody was hyper competitive and the, um, the situation was really, really stressful. And it was always about, you know, getting the maximum out of the uh, maximum out of the horses and that not being able to do that every single day, put a lot of pressure on me. And I struggled, um, not only in the show ring, it just started in the show ring and then it moved into the practice ring. And then it moved into just pretty much every time I interacted with an animal. And when that happens, you know, that's the beginning, kind of almost the beginning of the end, unless you can change it. Um, what happens is if you deal with your hyperachiever syndrome is you detach that sense of self-worth, that sense of identity, and that sense of I'm a person from every trophy, every ribbon, every accomplishment, and you celebrate just being human instead of I'm a human that's won 10 gold medals or whatever goal you set for yourself Um, because you're worthy of being celebrated regardless of whether you're you've won 10 gold medals or two gold medals or none Um, and then the gold medals or whatever goal you set they become icing on this cake um, that you know you really really celebrate really interesting uh, explanation of this and and I think while you were talking, you said you created a new one. I'm going to create one too. Parentitis problem as well. Yes. So uh, coined here first, everybody. Make sure that uh, <laughs> we here first. in the journal articles. But but there's there's that pressure as you you kind of intimated from the athlete, but a lot of it comes from yeah. the parents placing that pressure on the child who, as you said, may not even enjoy the sport, let alone want to compete in it. If, if I think back to, to kind of what you do as a living now, what are some of the maybe one or two things that you wish you had known when you got into this profession that maybe other people should be aware of if they're thinking about kind of doing the same thing? Oh, thank you for this question. I love this. Um, probably the number one thing is the power of visualization and imagery. So 
whenever I would ride, this was, you know, 20 years ago when I was doing this professionally, whenever I would ride a course, I would go to a horse show and I would, you know, anybody who knows anything about riding horses, you, you know, you go out and you know what the course is going to look like before you go in the ring. Um, so if you ride the jumpers, you get to walk the course, but if you ride in the hunters, you don't. Um, but you know what path they're supposed to take. I never imagined what it was like to ride that path before I actually went in the ring and rode it. So the first time I ever experienced what it was like to ride that course, ride that path was the first time I ever rode it on my horse, which means, which there's nothing wrong with doing that, but everything happens so fast. You know, when you compete, everything is much, much faster than you really realize it's going to. So your automatic, um, your muscles, you know, react automatically if they're habituated, if they're programmed to. So this is what muscle memory is. If you don't have that muscle memory to do things, then you're going to miss things on course. And visualization really, really helps with programming in muscle memory. Because like I said, your brain doesn't know the difference. So if you're imagining writing this course over and over and like imagining it really in detail, it's the same as if you're actually writing it. And so that muscle memory will start to kick in as you get, as you do it more and more and more. And you'll start to realize, oh, I need a flying lead change here. Or, oh, I need to, I need to shorten up here. Or I need to, I need to extend my horse's stride or you know, whatever sport you want to apply it to. Um, visualization is so incredibly important when you're practicing skills. And in times like this, in times like COVID, when you can't practice as much as you would like to, or is, you can't even practice at all because things are shut, visualization is that one thing that you, and imagery is that one thing that you can still do that will you will reap benefits with later when the gyms do open back up or when you can go back to practice um that's the first thing the second thing is how you talk about yourself um words matter period so when you talk about yourself if you talk about and you say oh i messed that up um, or, oh, I messed that up, thus I'm a bad writer. The more you say that, the more you believe it. The things you say about yourself become the things you believe about yourself. So, and this is, this is true across no matter what you say, whether you're talking about your ability on a pitch or on a field, on a court, or you talk about your intelligence. So if you, you know, say, oh, if you have this habit of saying, oh my God, I'm so stupid. The more you say that, the more you believe it, and it becomes part of who you believe that you are. So do yourself a favor. Be nice to yourself. Say nice things about yourself. Don't say bad things about yourself because what you say, you start to believe. It's great advice. Thank you. I know that a lot of people watch these after the live event, and if they have questions, want to follow up with you, learn more, what's the best way for them to do that? They can email me. So um, the easiest email address um, to get to is uh, jessica.searcy at athlete-eq.co.uk. 
Well, Jessica, thank you so much for joining me this morning and, and sharing a little bit of, of your experiences. And I, I hope people do follow up with questions. I appreciate it. Of course. Uh, just a reminder, if you haven't yet subscribed to the YouTube channel, be sure to do so because we try to offer these interviews each and every week, provide you with some insight into sports performance and sports in general, and also coaching, education, and development. But on behalf of myself, Tim Baggers, and of course, Jessica Searcy, thank you so much for watching.